before Dan starts, I just wanted to do a really quick introduction to um, the meeting house. So Newington Green Meeting House um, is this building in the picture. If your Hackney Islington way on, you might recognise it. And we had some restoration work done recently. Um, it's where I work. I'm the programme manager there um, of the history project. So this event and all the events that we have been doing, sharing the history of Mary Wollstonecraft and the dissenters, um, is thanks to funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. And uh, the work that we do is about the past, but it's more about using uh, the past and history as a way to uh, mobilise social change today. Um, so I think that's quite fitting because I think Dan works very similarly in the format of uh, this event today. So um, I am going to hand over to Dan uh, just to say the event's being recorded um, and it will be available on the Newington Green Meeting House website and perhaps on Dan's platforms too. Um, yeah, great. Thank you so much and over to Dan. Thank you so much, Amy. Hello, everybody. Welcome and a very happy LGBT History Month 2021 to, to you all. How are you all doing? Great. Yeah, uh, my name uh, is Dan Delamotte and I am a performer, curator and tour guide specialising in queer heritage. And I'm single. And I'm really thrilled to have been asked uh, by Amy, by Newington Green Meeting House, erected AD 1708 and enlarged in 1860 to talk with you today about Molly Houses. So thank you Newington Green Meeting House for organizing this and thank you also for consistently being the home of radical thought. Now, I'm very aware right now that it's a Thursday evening, which normally only means one thing in this household at least, drag race. So don't, <laughs> so don't worry, I'll only keep you up to uh, eight o'clock and then we can all watch it together maybe. Now, in the 18th century, which is the 1700s, a Molly House was a gay slash queer pub, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern or the glory of its day. Uh, but it was much more than that as well. Just like those two examples, the RVT and the glory, the Molly Houses in London in the 1700s were community spaces, ceremonial spaces, a space for gender and sexual exploration, a space for play, a space for mischief, and a safe space as well. If any of you were at the British Library talk on Molly's last week, you'll have seen Mark Ravenhill, the playwright of this play, Mother Clap's Molly House, compare the Molly houses uh, of London in the 1700s with the Vogue ballroom houses in New York in the 1980s. Both were literally known as houses, uh, but spaces in which you could find your chosen family and tribe uh, but also both examples had mothers, these matriarchal figures who supposedly kept order, kept out or in the retrobates and did their best to protect you from Lily Law and Pretty Police and Pretty Patel. Uh, the uh, parallels between the Molly houses and House of whatever in New York in the 1980s are incredible actually. And although it's very unlikely that anyone in the New York Vogue scene of the 1980s would ever have heard of Mother Clap and the like, the, 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 the parallels are striking. Now the word Molly either came from uh, Mary, a term of endearment, mulier, the Latin for woman, or mollid, meaning soft. But within the community, Molly really meant puff, or fairy, 
or pansy. So it was slang, definitely not the more clinical term of homosexual. So it was very much street vernacular to be a molly rather than an objective dictionary definition. But being a molly was much more than just going to the pub and having a quick shag in the room upstairs. Uh, which is, I'm sure, why we're all so desperate for pubs to reopen. Um, it was a whole way of living and whole characters and identities needed to be created, which is what we're going to do now collectively, uh, all of us here together on this Zoom. So any Molly worth their salt would have had a maiden name, which is a female name either selected or given to a Molly, which is reflective of their personal appearance, uh, their occupation or other signifier about them. Now, what makes this slightly more complicated is that this Molly name might be very, very literal or it might be very, very ironic. So when we're trawling through the archives and we come across a fat Susan, for example, we can't be too sure whether she literally was fat or whether other bitchy, jealous, queenie Mollies gave this slim Molly this name to bring her down a peg or two. So other examples of those Molly maiden names, we've got uh, Orange Deb, who was Martin McIntosh, an orange seller. Uh, I prefer the name Orange Deb to Martin McIntosh personally, no offense to any Mark and McIntoshes uh, on the Zoom uh, tonight. Um, Hanover Kate came from Germany. Uh, this is a good one. Hardware Nan uh, was an older person who sold hardware. Uh, this is also a good one. Um, old Fish Hannah, and Young Fish Hannah were two fishmongers uh, of different ages. Uh, my personal favorite is this one, Susan Guzzle, who liked to drink. And for some reason it makes me think, the name Susan Guzzle makes me think of the name John Sizzle, who co-runs Hackney's contemporary Molly House, The Glory in Haggerston, uh, along with Johnny, of course, who's on the call. Um, Joanna, the ox-cheeked woman, either had uh, big jowls or a huge arse, we're not sure. And so what we're gonna do collectively now is I'm gonna give you two minutes to come up with your very own maiden name. Now remember the rules on how you come up with your Molly name. It can be based on your occupation, some element of your appearance, whether ironic or literal, where you come from, what you like to do, what you're known or notorious for. That's, that's how you get your Molly name. And then you add a woman's name either before or after. It's entirely up to you what woman's name you choose. And once you've got your maiden name, stick it in the chat and we'll see which Mollies are here on this Zoom tonight. I'll give you one or two minutes to do that now. So we've got some in the chat already. We've got Polly, uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, they're coming in thick and, thick and fast. Margot Rimmer, I love that one. Give us a wave, Margot Rimmer. <laughs> I, I, perhaps I can you are, Margot. I think I can guess why you might be called Margot Rimmer. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Scrivener Jill, says Darren Smith, that's a good one. Messy Irish Mary uh, is Billy McMahon. Uh, who else have we got? Footy Deborah. Uh, Lally Wu, that's a good one. Lally is Polari for fingers. Bookworm Philly. Uh, Anne Archivy. Polly Post. Big Long Lally, <laughs> that's from my old mucker Lil Warren. Nice to have you here, Lil. Scunthorpe Sal, says Amy. Uh, Juicy Lucy, that's a good one. Uh, Fast Track Delilah. Boobsy Barbara, Boobsy Barbara, I guess. Uh, Hairy Sally, uh, Boozy Susie, Waffle Alex. 
Raucous Roz, Dolly Darling, uh, Jalzy the Wood, uh, I think we can work that one out as well, Natasha Buzaluk, uh, Tiny Bell, uh, Tinsel Tina, uh, Artie Lulu, uh, Shitty Draw Sally. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good one. Red Hook Tina, Boozy Susie. I think I've read that one already. Scottish Susie. Uh, someone's just written Legs. Great. Uh, Broken Glass Bertha and Prosecco Polly. They're in the same uh, household. Pancake Petey. Uh, Labia Limerick. Very good. Turkey Gobble and uh, Peaches Petra. Tiny Tuga Twinny. Uh, Moist Maisie is here in the house. Hi, Moist Maisie. Uh, Chicken Soup Sarah. Dyka Lou. Hi, Lou. Nice to have you here as well. Um, those are great. Any more uh, Molly names? Busty Springfield. That's more of a drag name, I think, than a, than a Molly name, perhaps Lucia, but that's, uh, that's great. Fat Fanny. <laughs> I'd go to the doctor if I were you. Uh, that's great from Heather. Um, I'll just ask my flatmates that are sat in the corner if you've got any names. Okay, uh, not very good from this household, <laughs> but the ones in the chat, Yorkshire Pudding Pam. Uh, that's great. So if you've, we're going to continue now. If you've not had a chance to uh, to come up with your, your Molly name, give it a little think uh, and uh, perhaps put it in the chat uh, later on. Now, there were Molly houses across London, in particular around Holborn and Moorgate. Now, I'm going to focus on Molly activity in Hackney as much as I can, because that was the brief given to me by our mates at Newington Green Meeting House. But forgive me if I stray slightly outside the postcode, because to be a Hackney boy such as myself is to occasionally dip your toe into Tower Hamlets, Islington or the Square Mile, innit? Now, how do we know about the Mollies? Well, ironically, the organisations and institutions that existed to persecute and oppress gay men, as well as sex workers and the criminal underclass, uh, which the Mollies would certainly have been part of, uh, are the way in which we can celebrate the lives of Mollies today. So the main society that existed at the time of the Mollies was the Society for the Reformation of Manners, who existed to do just that, to protect and support upstanding moral values, such as heterosexuality, as well as crackdowns on drunkenness, swearing and other forms of lewd behavior. Yet the society inadvertently helped to promote homosexuality and molly houses by publicizing their locations, printing their locations, as well as the locations of notorious cruising grounds. Now what this means is that potential or younger mollies would or could read about molly shenanigans in the society's publications and go, oh, thanks guys, I know where I'll be heading next time there's a full moon, or next time I've got a full moon. Um, Near Newington Green Meeting House, the Stone Newington-based author Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, who was a moralist, he advocated what was known as the Dutch system of the capture and trials of queer men and mollies being done in secret so as not to fan the flames of homosexual behaviour. I suppose you could say with Daniel Defoe that he'd rather fame the, flame the fans of homosexuality rather than fan the flames. Uh, but anyway, that joke didn't land. And so without the society, uh, we would have virtually no record or knowledge of the world of 18th century mollies. Now, just to make this slightly more contemporary, one of the reasons why lesbians and lesbianism has never been illegal in this country is because the state was worried that if they inadvertently gave lesbianism publicity by criminalizing it, they would make lesbianism seem cool and something that women would want to try. 
a bit like drugs at university. Anyway, back to the 18th century. In the 18th century, it was the victims of crime that had to rustle up the initial court costs. So in an extreme example, if your husband was murdered, it was you that had to stump up the costs to bring the murderer to, to prosecution. Who is the victim of the victimless crime of gay sex though? And therefore who is stumping up these court fees? Well, it was the society that banded together the money needed to prosecute men for the victimless crime of being themselves, of being gay. The society can also be seen as a precursor to Mary Whitehouse's National Viewers and Listeners Association in the 1970s, which she set up to pull Britain out of the gutter and establish traditional conservative Christian values. In 1971, the Gay Liberation Front, the GLF, successfully disrupted Mary Whitehouse's Festival of Light, starring Cliff Richard, through infiltrating the festival and carrying out zap actions uh, one after the other. So this included uh, dragging up his nuns and doing a can-can down the aisle, releasing mice, pretending to be Southern Baptist preachers, and my favourite, finding the fuse box and plunging the entire hall into darkness when the minister on stage said, let there be light. To bring another parallel with George in London, White House's NVLA, the National Viewers and Listeners Association, also wanted to recriminalise abortion, a pressing issue for many sex workers who would have hung out with the Mollies at the Molly houses. But what's all that got to do with Molly houses? I think I hear you cry. Well, not a lot, apart from the fact that you can perhaps compare the impishness and mischief of some of the GLF Gay Liberation Front actions with the behavior of the Mollies 250 years before. And in September of this year, I'm really excited to be returning to Newington Green Meeting House. That's the fifth time I've said Newington Green Meeting House. Oops, that's the sixth time. I get, I get 50p each time I do. To curate GLF at 50, The Art of Protest, uh, an exhibition displaying the artistic talents of GLF activists from 50 years ago, some of whom I think are on this call tonight, alongside works by younger LGBTQ plus artist activists. So do make sure that you all come to that. And the book of the upcoming exhibition is being published by Camp Books later this month, available for pre-order now on the Camp Books website. Anyway, alongside the pearl clutches of the Society for the Reformation of Manners, the state vigilantes and molly catchers carried out the practice of pretty police. This is the type of honey traps that we more associate with the 20th century, both before and even after the Sexual Offences Act partially decriminalized homosexuality in 1967. And what I'm gonna do now is share with you some examples of these honey traps and undercover reports, including from a molly house in Hackney's very own Christopher Street. Upon capture, the notorious Molly, William Brown, had this to say upon his arrest. I think there is no crime in making pleas of my body. Just think about how boldly radical that statement is. I think that there is no crime in making pleasure of my body. This is a statement of self-ownership of the body, self-ownership of sexuality and gender at a time when to be deviant sexually or gender-wise could literally mean a death sentence. And when we list London's incredible roll call of gay and queer pioneers and liberationists, we must also put Molly William Brown on that list. I don't know what his real, what his Molly name would have been. Now, William Brown was caught in a honey trap by the notorious Molly catcher, Thomas Newton. Here's the story as told by Newton. I was no stranger to the methods they used to pick each other up. 
So I takes a turn that way and leans over the wall. And in a little time, a gentleman passes by and looks hard at me. And a small distance from me, stands up against the wall as if he was gonna make water. Then by degrees, he slides nearer and nearer to where I stood till at least he comes close to me. Tis a very fine night, says I. Aye, says he, and so it is. Then he takes me by the hand and after squeezing and playing with it a little, to which I showed no dislike, he conveys it to his breeches and puts his privities into it. I took fast hold and called out to Wallace and Stevenson, who coming to my assistance, we carried him to the watch house. Now, Newton himself, the molly catcher, was a gay man, but he worked for the authorities to catch other mollies as to ensure his own freedom. Here's another report. I found between 40 and 50 men making love to one another, as they called it. Sometimes they would sit on one another's laps, kissing in a lewd manner and using their hands indecently. Then they would get up, dance and make curtsies and mimic the voices of women. Oh, fie, sir, pray, sir, dear, sir, Lord, how can you serve me? I swear I'll cry out, you're a wicked devil and you're a bold face. Oh, you little toad, come bus. Then they'd hug and play and toy and go out by couples into another room on the same floor to be married, as they called it. Now, that reference to be married leads me to talk about one of the most playful, mischievous and funny aspects of Molly life and culture, which is the ceremonies. Mollies in the Molly houses took part in mock rituals and events such as weddings, births, giving birth to wooden dolls and wooden spoons and baptisms. But the key word here is mock. It's, these were mock rituals. This was a deliberate inversion of heterosexual or heteronormative norms rather than a genuine desire to copy them or to be like heterosexual society. Richter Norton, who was pretty much king or queen of Molly knowledge in his book, Mother Claps Molly House, the same title as, uh, as Mark Ravenhill's play, says the Mollies took common stereotypes of anti-homosexual prejudice e.g. that sodomites were barren and effeminate, and exaggerated them and reveled in them to such an extent that they lost their sting. So this can be read as a sort of reclamation akin to a more contemporary reclamation of the word and term queer. This is really high camp. So in plain English, the Mollies didn't actually want to get married. This isn't some sort of early equal marriage campaign. Instead, it was a piss take of straight culture and identity. Mollies didn't want to have kids. They didn't want to adopt. It was a piss take of the breeders in society. And I really love this piss take element of the Molly identity because I really uh, link up to it because it's a timeless skill. It's timeless to have this understanding and this viewpoint that generation after generation of gay men have passed on to us by our gay ancestors, almost by osmosis to take the piss out of heterosexual society. Uh, just look at Love of Huns on Instagram for an example of that. The Mollies would have been effeminate. By the way, I only learned what that word meant uh, because as a kid, mum told me not to do something because it made me look effeminate. And I remember saying, uh, what does effeminate mean? Uh, but anyway, uh, but what's interesting is that this effeminacy was only noticed within the Molly community. 
It was a calling card to others or a form of peacocking. No court case exists where effeminate behavior was used as proof that someone was a sodomite or a gentleman of the back door, to use a phrase from the day. So this ability to use effeminacy to hide and communicate in plain sight is incredible. Just think about that for a minute. So Molly's being invisible in mainstream society and London life to all but those who they wish to see them. It's like a superhuman skill. What is your superpower? Well, I'm only visible to people who I want to see me. And we can compare this to the language Polari, coming from the Italian Polare, to speak, which was spoken most commonly in the 1950s, so around 200 years later. For those of you that haven't come across it, Polari is this uh, patchwork language made up of a hybrid of European Latin languages, Cockney rhyming slang, back slang, Yiddish, and acronyms. Polari is a playful, sexual, and funny language, yes, but it's also a language spoken out of necessity. You could drop a Polari term or expression into a conversation and see if anyone picked it up and ran with it. And if they did, you knew you were among friends or at least were gonna get your end away that night. And some Polari terms are still in common use today by people who have no idea that they are actually speaking a secret gay code. So for example, to scarper means to run away. To mince means to walk in a effeminate way. And so I suppose corn mince is to walk in an effeminate way if you're vegetarian. Uh, zhuzh, uh, to zhuzh up your H&M dress with sequins, for example. Uh, dish is an attractive man. And naf, meaning bad or lame, supposedly coming from the acronym NAFF, not available for fucking. So you might describe either a heterosexual or unattractive man as NAF, and often a heterosexual and an unattractive man are, of course, the same thing. The master of Polari was, of course, uh, Kenneth Williams, who would say the most outrageous things every week on BBC Radio. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes. Oh. But so cloaked was his Polari that even the eagle eared Mary Whitehouse couldn't. Uh, penetrate. By the way, I always smile to myself when I pass a chicken shop called Chicken Cottage, because in Polari, this literally translates as going to a public toilet because you know that there'll be lots of young gay men there. For more on Polari, you can hire me to run workshops on the topic or read Paul Baker's great book, Fabulosa, or why not support the queer economy in these hard times and do both. But again, what's all this got to do with Molly houses? I think I hear you cry. Well, Polari is the daughter of a language made up by the Mollies called Kant. And in this book, uh, Barker, uh, sorry, Baker makes the um, comparison between the Mollies and the latest speakers uh, of uh, Polari, uh, when he says that as well as enjoying sex with other men, both groups use performance, parody, and camp humor and built up a social identity around this shared sexual practice, resulting in a community or subculture. Both groups were criminalized by mainstream society and so were driven underground and both groups had specific words that were not known by others. Now one of the general rules of thumb for Kant, the Molly language, is that it's very very descriptive. For example you can use the word cheat to mean thing which, on top of which you put an adjective. So a hearing cheat is your ear, you might need to keep your hearing cheats peeled for Lily Law, uh, and you can work out then that a smelling cheat is your nose, for example, thing which smells, thing which hears. And the word cheat can be found in Polari as well, such as thumping cheat. 
which means heart. Oh, be still my thumping cheat, you might cry out if you saw an attractive dish heading for the cottage. Um, uh, in Kant, uh, a trundling cheat was a horse and cart or a prancer and cart, but by the age of Polari, trundling cheat has been updated to mean taxi. So if some of those cheats are a little bit more cryptic as well, so for example, a lullaby cheat is an infant, thing which you deliver a lullaby to, uh, a rubbing cheat was the gallows, a place where many Kant speakers risked ending up and a place where your neck certainly got a rubbing. Now, interestingly, in Kant, the word queer uh, meant something that was bad or a threat to the criminal underclass. So, for example, a queer rooster is a police informant. My guess on that one is because uh, roosters make noise, disturb the peace. Uh, a queer ken uh, no offense to any Kens on the call tonight, was a prison uh, because Ken meant uh, place. So this is bad place. Uh, so, and uh, a final one, queer cull uh, is a fool or an idiot, cull person, bad person. And just with Polari, there are some Kant words which have infiltrated contemporary language even today. So for example, booze to mean alcohol, trade to mean sex, Queen to mean gay acquaintance usually meant positively. Where have you been, you saucy queen, is a way that Molly's would uh, welcome and greet each other. And also lifting to mean stealing. So think of shoplifting, for example. And just with Polari, uh, Kant is a fun, playful and sexual language. All of the following that I'm about to read to you uh, either mean cruising for sex or having sex in Kant. Catawalling, bit a blow, that one sounds a bit painful. Put the bite, endorse, did you uh, endorse the suggestion? Do the story, well, every gay loves an anecdote. Make a bargain, sounds a little bit desperate, but we've all been there. The pleasant deed, been there less often, to be honest, and riding a rump. I think that one's pretty clear what that means. Uh, for more contemporary Kant and Polari and to display the evolution of the language, we can perhaps look to RuPaul and Drag Race and terms like work, however you're choosing to spell the word work. And when and if people critique the Americanization of English gay language, just tell them that the term blowjob came over with the GIs in the 1940s. Uh, while we're on the subject of language, though, in the 1700s, uh, we saw the birth of newspapers and a larger press. And what I'm going to read to you now is a press report on how to spot a molly. It reads very similar to the coverage of gay men in The Sun or The Mail in the 1980s that we've seen in It's a Sin. So this report comes from the middle of the 1700s on how to spot a molly or how to spot a gay man more generally. He pats the back of his hands. They put a white handkerchief through the shirt of their coat and wave it to and fro. But if they are met by you, their thumbs stick up their armpits of their waistcoats and they play their fingers upon their breasts like this. By means of these signals, they return to satisfy a passion too horrible for description, too detestable for language. You can imagine Kelvin McKenzie or Pierce Morgan commissioning that piece. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read to you um, a page from this play, Mother Claps Molly House, to give you a stronger idea of the excitement and rawness of the time. So I'm going to read from Act One, Scene Three. It's two boys 
talking to each other. Orm has spotted Martin around town and followed him back to the shop where Martin works as an apprentice. Orm. See you up more fields a few times. Martin. Might have done. You hear what they call more fields? No. Sodomites walk. You never heard that? Never. Oh yeah. You take a piss up more fields, take a piss against a wall, and all of a sudden there's one man to the left of you and two to the right of you, and they're all taking a piss too. And then one man will reach out and play with the other one's prick, and t'other man will reach out and touch your prick. Don't you think that's frightening? What do you do? What's that? Man touching your prick, what do you do? You never had your prick touched? No. Well, you feel such shame, and then you feel lost, and you don't know which way to turn. Just a little flavor of uh, Sodomite's walk in uh, Moorfields there. Now I want to end uh, the, this bit of me talking just at you uh, by shining a light on the title character of that play, Mother Clap, and the title character of Richard Norton's book uh, of the same name, uh, Mother Clap. So what is remarkable with Margaret Clap is that we have here by all accounts, a heterosexual woman who was running a space for gay men. Uh, when Mother Clapp's Molly House was eventually raided, uh, Margaret Clapp has this to say at her trial. I hope it will be considered that I am a woman and therefore it cannot be thought that I would ever be concerned with such practices. Mother Clapp was found guilty of keeping a house in which she procured and encouraged persons to commit sodomy. She was sentenced to stand in the pillory and then serve a two year prison sentence. Now we need to remember that uh, the pillories are not the same as the stocks where you might get your photo taken at an English heritage site today. They were exceptionally cruel and dangerous. Uh, people uh, would throw heavy stones and dead animals at you. They could rip the clothes off your back. And the treatment that Mother Clapp, that Margaret Clapp received in the pillory meant that she never got to serve her prison sentence because she died of the injuries that she received in the pillory. And I deliberately end there because a lot of what I have said tonight has been sexy and I hope and playful and exciting, but it's also important to remember that this was a time of great danger and persecution, not just to the Mollies, uh, but for all of everyone in society who had some element of their identity or another uh, had to live lives of resilience and survival. Did Mother Clapp run the Molly house because she was on to a good thing or because she supported and incubated gay men? Or is there some sort of hazy middle ground? Why did she run this space? Uh, I don't know the answer, but whatever it is, what an incredible, incredible place she ran and what an incredible life uh, she led. Um, I'm gonna stop talking there and open to any questions you might have. Thank you. How do you want people to ask you questions, Dan? Should they just unmute themselves and ask? Yes. Or, okay. uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, just go ahead and unmute yourself. You should be able to do that and just uh, ask a question to, to Dan. And I'm, I'm sure we can just take it in turns. Ooh. Go ahead, Jeff and Peter. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic, Dan. I really enjoyed it. And it's very pertinent to me because this is a bit of advertising, but I'm doing a talk myself on the 6th of March about the second Baron Berwick of Attingham, which is near Shrewsbury. 
Now, he, I'm sure, was a gay man, had a 17-year-old courtesan as his wife, so a beard. And um, what I have him do in my play is read lots of extracts from the papers that you've been looking at from the uh, 1700s. And obviously, one of the things that would have terrified him was exactly what you said about the pillory. Um, I hadn't realised it till I'd done my research that, yes, if you were, a, and he, he reads out uh, an example, if you're a Molly, beware, because you will die at the pillory. So uh, spot on. And thank you so much, Danny. <laughs> and I love thank your humour with it all. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff and Peter. Thank you. There is a question I just saw in the chat uh, from uh, from Alexandra, who's actually my employer at the moment. Uh, I'm, I work as her nanny, uh, asking about the wooden spoons. Uh, wooden spoons would have been given birth to. Uh, so um, the, the, you could either give birth to an ornate wooden doll, but perhaps if you didn't have a wooden doll to hand, uh, the, the child that you give birth to would be a wooden spoon with a smiley face on it. <laughs> and thank you for coming as well, Alex. Nice to see you. <laughs> Do we know whether the Molly houses themselves were actually more like a pub or like a private house that people just entertained? I think there's two well, there's literally two floors. Uh, so downstairs you've got the raucous uh, drinking and kind of social socialising, and then uh, so I've just got my family on his knees going underneath me so he can get past. Um, and uh, and then upstairs you've got the uh, you've got the, the rooms for sexy shenanigans. So it would have been um, a mixture, and also they would have done it that way. I think so that um, if the club was raided, it would perhaps you would be able to differentiate what was going on uh, in, in the space. Hello, Dan. It's Lil. Can you hear Hi, me? Hi, Lil. Hello. Yes. Hello. Um, uh, very fantastic talk. Thank you very much. I just wanted to ask you a question. It's sort of related, um, but I am from the East End, and um, I was all, I've always been curious at, at the popularity and why were there so many drag pubs and clubs in like Stepney, Mile End, Limehouse and all of that. I mean, I wonder if you could answer that question for me. I mean, I enjoyed them, but I just didn't understand why there were so many. Do you know what, Lil? There's people on this call that are more expert than me on that. It's fantastic. I think, I don't know if he's still here, but Johnny Wu um, has literally researched that and wrote an amazing uh, piece called Silvertown, uh, which is available to watch on YouTube, uh, which does document that about how in the east end of London, you have this really thriving uh, queer scene and drag scene in and amongst the dockers. I think perhaps it is due to the relation, the, the proximity with the docks, that with the docks, you've got all these people coming in and those dockers would have spoken Polari. They would have spoken a really coarse and crude Polari uh, and their Polari would have merged with the Polari of the, of the gay scene as well. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I've watched videos of uh, these kind of these gay pubs and these, and what's brilliant about them is that they're really working class spaces. I think that some, what annoys me, Lil, is that sometimes the, the concept of queerness is, is made too academic. It is seen as something that should be preserved for the seminar room of the university. And actually, I think that that's bollocks and that uh, we should really celebrate the, 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 working class identity of these spaces rather than just making it all about Susan Sontag queer theory. Yeah, there's a space for that, but I ain't got nine grand a year tuition fees to learn all about that. So I'm going to go down the boozer instead. Um, Dan, can we um, go to Ian next? Ian, do you want to ask your question? 
Thanks, Amy, uh, and thanks, Dan. Uh, I just wanted to know if you had any more recommended books. Um, you mentioned a couple there, but if there were any more recommended reading that you had. Do you know what? Shall I go and get them? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Wait, wait there, Ian. Wait there. Okay. So you could read uh, A Queer City by Peter Ackroyd. There's some stuff in my mind in that. Uh, Stuart Feather has written Blowing the Lid which is all about the, it's not about Molly's, but it's about the stuff I was telling you about Mary Whitehouse and the National Viewers and Listeners Association and the incredible radical work of the uh, Gay Liberation Front. And uh, my mate Dan Glass has written this book, uh, United Queerdom, uh, which, is, uh, which is worth a, a buy as well. And of course, Ian, you're very, very welcome to buy the book that I've written that's just been published uh, by Camp Books. That's available for pre-order now on the Camp Books website. We sold 23 copies today alone. Ain't that amazing? What's it called, um, Dan? Oh, you've, saw, you've, you've seen that already? What's it called? Oh, oh yeah, what's it called? It's called, uh, it's called The Art of Protest. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for that. You're welcome. There's a question from Evgeny. Questions. Oh, yeah. yeah, sorry. I was going to say there's quite a few on the chat. I don't know if you want to work through them. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Um, are Molly Houses evident in other parts of the UK too, or is it only London? Uh, there's evidence of Molly Houses in Bristol. Uh, that's the only example I've come across. There probably would have been Molly Houses in large, densely populated areas. I would, I'd be surprised if there wasn't any Molly Houses in Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, places like that. But, uh, but there seemed they would have been. The, the proximity seems to be in London and also Kant is very much a London language. And even with Polari, although there are examples of Polari across the country, it was very much more uh, a London thing and you can try and imagine speaking in a London accent. Uh, you mentioned Molly's being effeminate. So were Molly houses mostly slash only for gay men who express themselves in a femme way or were there butch and or what, were, what we might call straight acting now Molly's? I think that to be a Molly was very performative, that your, your um, identity not as a Molly uh, was in your outside world. The second you enter the Molly house, you become a Molly. And so you put on the wig, you put on the dress, you put on the makeup, uh, and then you return to your outside world, you return to your wife perhaps um, away from that. Uh, of course, um, there would have been marriage dynamics. You would have had the butch and the, and the you know, obviously you would have had the passive and the active and the, perhaps the, the butcher and the more femme uh, getting married in these kind of situations. Um, but but it, it, to, be, to be a Molly, in my opinion, uh, from what I've read, is, is to be very kind of um, deliberately performative and performatively effeminate. Uh, I'm just zipping through some of these other, it's quite hard, there's quite a lot of comments. Uh, if, if I'm going through those, and maybe if we can go to um, Evgeny with your question, if you want to go, come off mute. While we wait for that, just this, uh, there's a comment here from Samantha about trans identity. Yes, and you know, perhaps you, that's obvious that there's a, that been omitted from my talk. That's because I deliberately uh, am hesitant to give a trans identity to people who are not here to say whether they are trans or not. There's, there's examples and case studies of people who using today's terminology are um, gender non-conforming or non-binary or, or whatever they might be, but um, I'm hesitant to say this is an example of a trans person um, just because th that's using contemporary language 
for someone that lived um, 300 years ago. Uh, Sorry that you're all just watching me reading comments. I think I've answered those questions then. Oh, uh, just, uh, oh, Evgeny is wondering about the Society for the Reformation of Manners. Did they pay guys for fishing and who was behind this organization? Yeah, I mean, basically it was just busybodies. You know, uh, that's one thing that lived, that's, you know, timeless throughout history. It was just a collection of busybodies who got their knickers in a twist, got all affronted with the fact that people were having fun down the road and so wanted to do something about it. They wanted to uh, uphold traditional moral values, just like Mary Whitehouse's NVLA did 300 years later. So they they were self-funded. You know, we have examples today of these self-funded organizations that do similar stuff. Um, And, uh, you know, everyone needs a hobby. Their hobby was um, hating on gay people. And Peter asked about specific locations, Dan, that you uh, know about that were Molly houses. So maybe we could go and visit them today in Hackney. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Molly houses are still standing, unfortunately, but uh, you can go to uh, uh, Finsbury Square, which is the Sodomites Walk. Uh, Moorgate, the Sodomites Walk is, is Moorgate, and uh, Molly, Mother Claps Molly House would have been in Farringdon as well. Mm. Um, so the, 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 the majority of Molly Houses would have been in, the, in sort of Islington Square and the Square Mile, going into the centre of London, uh, and then kind of would have flirted with the outskirts of Hackney. Okay. And Moorgate. Uh, great. Well, if if there's not any other questions, I'm really so thrilled that so many people have given up a Thursday night. Well, I know you've got nothing else on, perhaps, but uh, given up a Thursday night to come to this. Uh, it's been really great. And I just, again, want to give my absolute gratitude to Amy and the team at Newington Green Meeting House uh, for having me uh, to do this. Newington Green Meeting House is such a gem uh, and I'm really, really excited to be back there in September for, um, for the exhibition GLF, uh, The Art of Protest. Do come to that. Uh, before then, in May, uh, I will be at Platform Southwark to uh, curate an exhibition called Friendship Circles. Uh, do come to that as well. That will, that's, uh, that's artworks by the artist activist Andrew Lumsden. Um, and uh, it's just been so fantastic to spend this hour with you all. Thank you so, so much. Get in touch with me if you want at Dan Delamotte about other stuff. Um, but otherwise, thank you all so much for coming. Woo! Uh, uh, Dan, what's the best place for people to go to learn more about your work and see, is that Twitter? Is that the best place to go? Yeah, why not? Yes, yes, Dan Delamotte's my name. And this is my game. So, <laughs> so yes, Dan Delamotte, Dan Delamotte, Dan Delamotte. I'll say it one more time, Dan Delamotte. Quite hard to spell, D-E-L-A-M-O-T-T-E. It's French, isn't it? Brilliant, thank you so much, Dan. Oh, I've seen that the captions spelt it wrong. I'll do it just for the captions one final time. D-E space L-A space M-O-T-T-E. There we go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
Thank you. <laughs>